0: Second Samuel 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his feet and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Thus ends the reading of God's inerrant and infallible word. Promises are funny things, especially in our day and time when so much of our interaction is mediated through electronics. If you think about it, until 125, maybe 150 years ago, for all of human history, when you made a promise, someone heard you say it. Or you if you could write, you wrote it out in your handwriting. Or at the very uh, least, if you were illiterate, someone else who could write would have written out that promise, and at the very least... You would have put an X there next to your name, showing that you made this promise yourself. Now, most of our promises we make mediated through devices. It may be an email, it may be a text, it may be a phone call going through uh, the air uh, wirelessly, might be a Facebook message, might be a direct message. Of course, nothing accommodates our human nature better than Snapchat because you make a promise there and it disappears. (laughs) And nobody even knows you made it uh, after a a while. I think that's why we're amazed so much when people actually do keep their promises. When they do the hard thing, when they do the thing they don't have to do, when people would understand if they wiggled out of their promise and explained that, well, conditions have changed, um, which is always, you know, in the third person. It isn't that I've changed. It's that, well, you know, conditions, uh, circumstances have changed uh, and that sort of thing. There are some accounts in the great plot line of the Bible that moves the great story of God's redeeming a people for himself along. Think of those as uh, like a pencil outline uh, of a scene. But then there are other kinds of stories and accounts in the Bible that in some sense slow down and, and they, they fill in the, the gaps. They, they take that sketch and like a coloring book, they, they fill in the characters and they show us things about the character of God. And this passage is one of those in 2 Samuel 9. Um, it gives us a picture of King David. And more than that, it gives us a picture of King Jesus and how he draws the weak and the wounded to himself. And so this morning, we're going to look at this under two simple headings. One is a promise kept, and secondly, a promise made. Look in these first verses of of chapter 9. David is at the, uh, you could argue, the the best point in his kingdom's reign. Uh, He now has this house that God has built for him, both literally and figuratively. There is peace in the land. He has consolidated his reign and his rule. It was a long struggle with the house of Saul. You remember Saul had Uh, David had served in his court, and yet Saul, in losing his mind gradually and perhaps the the influence of Satan, uh, is after David, and he would switch from one minute wanting to hear David play the the harp and sing for him, and the next minute he was throwing spears at him and trying to pin him against a wall. He would later take his armies out trying to hunt David down because he knew he was a threat to Saul's reign and to Saul's house. When in fact, it was God who had brought judgment on Saul's house because of his unrighteous uh, leadership and his unrighteous acts as king. His lack of humility as king. But think back in 1 Samuel, when Saul is after David, we we get these little glimpses of the friendship between uh, David and Saul's son and his heir, Jonathan. And they have a friendship that is a picture of covenant friendship. You know, a covenant relationship is where law and love meet. And where love reinforces the commitments that law has, we've taken under the law. And the law reinforces the commitment that we have in love. And so if we were to look back, which we won't have time to do this morning, to First Samuel chapter 20. David and uh, Jonathan make this covenant of friendship to always treat one another well and to look after one another's houses, but that's been 20 years. A lot of things have happened. Jonathan is now dead. He and his father, Saul, uh, killed on Mount Gilboa uh, in the sort of the last battle of the house of Saul and the, the army that was under him. And now David is looking for ways to be gracious to the house of Saul. He's looking for ways to show kindness in verse 1 for Jonathan's sake. He, he is scratching around and trying to do something to honor these covenant promises he had made to Jonathan, and he is determined to keep this promise. And so he's asking, is there anybody left of Saul's house? Is there some way that I can keep my promise to my friend that I made, that we made before God? And this word comes to him uh, through Zeba that there is a son left, uh, a son David presumably didn't know about, named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth would have been uh, young uh, as uh, the the nurse who cared for him, who flees with him when the house of Saul falls. He would have been small enough to have carried, and yet now he is old enough to have a son of his own. But David doesn't have to do this. David doesn't have to. um, uh, So much of what's happened in the Bible up to this point Is David being forced by circumstances to do something? But just think about this for a minute. He is not in a tight spot here. Um, He isn't needing a palace at this point. He doesn't need genius. He he has that. He doesn't need uh, talents. He doesn't need the strength of armies. He has everything he needs. Except now he wants to make good on this promise that he made to his friend Years earlier, David is looking for a chance to be generous. He is, he is looking for an opportunity to go beyond perhaps no one outside of a tight circle would have even known about David's promise to Jonathan to, to look after him and his household. Mephibosheth, as I said, was only five or so when his nurse fled with him. And here's David who has everything that the world and God himself has to offer David. I mean David um, is is at the peak of the the earthly blessing of God, and Mephibosheth is just about the opposite of that. Mephibosheth is physically. Crippled and lame in a world that would not have dealt kindly. This was, there was no Americans with Disability Act at the time of his uh, life and at the time of his having to get around uh, Jerusalem and around the nation. Imagine how you are when perhaps you, you break a bone in a foot or a leg and you're on crutches and you're moving about with, with one good foot and one bad foot. Imagine he's lame in both of his feet. Imagine how hard it would have been for him to have gotten around. And that's when he had money. But he's, he's lost the use of these feet. He's lost his wealth that would have been the wealth of the house of Saul. He's living with... In and in probably, in some sense, in a back room that belonged to the help, if I can put it that way. The, the people that used to serve him, he's now dependent upon them. He, he's lost his prestige. Uh, unlike, you know, Prince Harry, who took off to California with his new wife, Mephibosheth didn't voluntarily give up his job as a working royal. It was taken away from him. And you can argue he needed the prestige and the wealth more than perhaps others in his family. And don't forget, his family has been taken away. His, his father and his grandfather and all of the people who would have been familiar to him growing up have all been killed and eliminated. And here's Mephibosheth with nothing, a loser, we might say, in every sense. He brought nothing when David summoned him but disability and poverty and family shame and um, nothing but a mess. And imagine what that must have been like living his life quietly, trying to get on with his life, trying to, to, to do uh, whatever it was he wondered perhaps God had for him in this life. Seemingly so much potential gone. And word comes to him one day, the king wants to see you. Now, remember, he was from the house of Saul. And David, obviously, is the house of David. And the way it worked and has worked in world history up until very recently, and indeed still works in some third world countries, we don't call them kings, we call them former leaders. When you lose power, you are destroyed and your family is destroyed, especially in the case of a hereditary monarchy, because if there's somebody left from the old house, they could be a threat to the leader who's now on the throne. So, as they might say in a, a mafia movie, you know, it's nothing personal, it, it's strictly business. But we've got to eliminate you because there's no way that, that our hold on the throne is secure as long as the people who are sentimental for the good old days could perhaps bring you back. So, if you're Mephibosheth, you want to live a very low key life. You don't want to cause attention to yourself, as hard as that would be with the disability that you have. So imagine Mephibosheth one day, minding his own business, has, in a sense, gotten away with this for years. And word comes, the king wants to see you. The fear that you would naturally have. Who's to say how much Mephibosheth knew of his father's relationship with David? After all, he was only five when his father is killed and the house of Saul falls and so uh, the messenger comes and he then comes with the messenger back to King David and imagine go back to uh, verse uh, the end of or middle of verse 6 he comes in and falls on his face and pays homage to And David says, Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth says, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Stop there. We know what David said, but Mephibosheth doesn't know what David is about to say. And by every principle of leadership, and if you will, good governance in the world at that time, The next words he should have heard would have been, off with your head. Or Mephibosheth, I'm sorry, but this is just the way things are. He wouldn't have even have exiled him. It would have been the end of his life. Friends, that is our place before a holy God. David here is a picture of God's kindness to sinners. God who has no need in himself, God who is not some deity who was lonely somehow in eternity past and needed to create people to keep him company. No, that, that is that is a lie from the pit of hell. This is God who is sufficient and is joyful in himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has everything he needs. Just as King David in a, in a tiny human picture had that. And he summons sinners to himself. He summons us by the, his glory in creation. And we stand before him and we have nothing. We've got nothing but the mess we have made of the physical world and the mess we've made in our relationships. We have the things that no one else knows about. Those closets that are off limits and nobody knows some of the things we've done or maybe the things we've thought or the things we've failed to do. And that word comes to us summoning. And just as David started with the word Mephibosheth, and David says to him, and the words from Jesus are, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden, uh, my yoke is easy, and my, my burden is light. And he invites sinners to come to him. And so Mephibosheth, in that instant how things would have changed and he realizes I've not been brought here to be killed to receive in some sense the just judgment on me because I'm in the house of Saul you and I are brought before a holy God and we are in Adam we sinned in Adam we are part of Adam's house and Jesus says, no, I, I'll take them into my house. And their, if you will, their last name changes. And, and, and it's no longer in Adam's sin, but it's in the second Adam's righteousness in Christ Jesus. And David fulfills this promise. He, he shows his goodness. We, we don't see a lot of pictures of that in this world. Maybe we're seeing it in Kathy's care for Nancy these many years. We see it in the life of the great uh, Princeton theologian died in the ni- early 1920s, B.B. B. Warfield. He and his wife Annie on a honeymoon to Europe in the late 1800s, and they're caught in a thunderstorm. And we don't know entirely. It could have been that she was struck by lightning but she has this nervous condition for the rest of her life and he's never for the for the last 39 years of her life he's never more gone from her more than 2 hours because she just can't take that but he made a promise to her Paul and I have a had a dear older friend whose wife got dementia and in those latter years I suspect he had to dress her daily and do her hair and do her makeup, and she was always put together. But he, it wouldn't have occurred to him not to have done that. When she died, he said, she, she was the only woman I ever loved. She was the only woman I ever kissed. And we see people keeping promises and it arrests us. And yet all the more we should see Christ Jesus keeping the promise going all the way back to Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So David is keeping his promise. And I want us, in keeping his promise, he makes a new promise. And so I want us to see this promise that he made uh, as we look the beginning in verse 5 at this promise, specifically in verse 7. We're going to spend most of the rest of our time there. David says to him three things in verse 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. First, David promises Mephibosheth protection. Do not fear, Mephibosheth, because of course, why does, when Jesus says that in the Gospels, why does he so often tell his disciples, do not fear? Because we fear. <laughs> he knows our nature. Da- David knew how this worked. He, he must have known what Mephibosheth was thinking. And so his first words to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. And notice it's not for Mephibosheth's sake. This isn't David feeling sorry for someone who had this uh, terrible physical disability and had a lot of hard knocks in life uh, with his family and his wealth and whatnot. He says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. It, It was the covenant David had made with Jonathan that allows Mephibosheth, in some sense, to stand in the place of Jonathan, is his offspring, and to receive the kindness of David toward him. Friends, this is a picture of our justification in Christ Jesus. We are accepted judicially and in terms of righteousness before God because of the work of his son Jesus. Because we are united to him by his spirit. Our sin is placed upon him. His righteousness is given to us. And the kindness that David would have shown Jonathan, you see, is placed upon Mephibosheth. And David now regards Mephibosheth the way he would have regarded his friend Jonathan. And he does it because of the promise that he had made. And so this is a a wonderful picture of how we who are in Christ are made right. There was nothing in Mephibosheth other than his relationship to David, I mean to Jonathan, that would have commended him to David. But because of that, David's first words to Mephibosheth are not to treat him, if you will, as Mephibosheth, this individual person but to treat him as Jonathan's son. And so too, when we are in Christ, we are treated not as our sins deserve, but as Christ's righteousness has merited before his father. And he says a second thing to him. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Mephibosheth, because of the actions of his father, and especially his grandfather, had lost all that he had. And he now lived certainly not in the way that he had. He now lives a very different life, a life that was diminished, a life that was lesser than it would have been had his grandfather Saul not been such a God-hating fool but now he lives in this squalor, and David responds to that, and he says, "You know those things that you lost, I'm going to restore those to you." And I think this is a beautiful picture of what God does in our sanctification. We have have have. Uh, tried to efface and destroy and eliminate any resemblance to our heavenly father that we received in creation in bearing God's image. And, and we have, have done everything we could to obscure that. And God begins to restore us when we are in Christ. And he begins giving us the family likeness of of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, and and he be, he begins restoring to us the things that our sin and our are, are being turned inward on ourselves and the effects of other people's sin on our lives. He begins gradually restoring those things that we've lost and the things that sin has destroyed and the judgment that has come. And and it's not perfect in this life, but one day it will be. One day, uh, we, he will wipe every tear away. One day, sin will be no more and judgment will be no more. But in the meantime, as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another in Christ and the longer we walk with him and the more we grow in our love for him and our belief in the scriptures and what he, how he has spoken to his people, Gradually, the lands that we've lost in Mephibosheth's terms begin to be restored. And finally, David says to him, this third aspect of this uh, restoration, he said, "Um, you shall eat at my table always. To eat at the king's table was to know the greatest of privileges. This Mephibosheth, who in the eyes of the world would have been a contender, would have been someone who would have been a threat to the house of David. David says, no, the the restoration for you is so complete. You who used to eat at the king's table when it was a different king, when you were just a child, a young child. Now you will eat at the king's table again. And we who in Adam once knew the fellowship of of Adam who would walk in the cool of the garden with God and knew the fellowship of that first meeting place of God with man. And who uh, destroyed that in his rebellion against God. God now brings us near. and He says, I will regard you in some sense as if these other things had never happened. And so we know the blessing of adoption. We who rebelled against our king now are drawn near. And the picture in the Bible is always of eating at the king's table. And those of us in Christ know the words of Jesus from John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And by David's promise, you will always eat at my table, was a promise to Mephibosheth that he would never be hungry and he would never be thirsty again. And you and I, when we are in Christ, know the blessing of adoption of being regarded as a son. And and it sounds sexist, but it's actually wonderful and glorious to be regarded as a son at the time in the Bible written was to have many more privileges as a daughter. And so we, men and women, are given all the privileges of sons that they would have received in that time. You see this great expansion of the kingdom. It's, it's not just uh, the, the the males. It's the males and the females. And it's not just Jews, but it's Jew and Gentile. And it's not just in this one little region uh, in the Middle East with you know precise GPS coordinates, but it's the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so the protection and the provision and the position that Mephibosheth is given points us to the one Jesus gives his people when he draws us near. There is an old principle of Bible interpretation. It's a good one to learn. If there's a good character in a story and then there's a bad character, you and I are the bad character. (laughs) And if there are two bad characters in a story, we're the worse one of the two. We're, we never see ourselves as the good character. King David is the one with power and is acting in righteousness. And Mephibosheth is the beggar who is weak. And all he brings is his mess. And David says, fear not. I will deal with you as I would deal with your father. And I will bring you near and I will restore the lands and you will eat at my table always. Someone said, Are not all sinners like Mephibosheth? We are sons of a king named Adam who was made Lord of all creation. We come from royal stock. We're greatly deserving of death and we're disfigured by the fall. Christ is a mighty power who has spoiled principalities and power making an open show of them on the cross. And that's the Jesus who now sits on the throne of David forever. Don't you know that when Mephibosheth in his own awkward way stumbled out of David's palace that day, he was in awe and, and, and wonder Perhaps he needed a while to put his thoughts together of how he was even going to tell people what had just happened to him. Those who thought they had seen Mephibosheth's head attached to his body for the last time. Now see, instead of that, Mephibosheth, who will always be eating at the king's table. Friends, we ought to have that same sense of wonder and of privilege and security when we are in Christ we know the king's protection and we know the privileges and we know the ways he has provided for us and so as we stumble to this table this morning we ought to reflect reflect on the words we're about to sing when Uh, Isaac Watts' words, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? The answer that Watts gives was the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Mephibosheth, but for the kindness of David, would have perished in his poverty and in his estrangement. And instead, he was brought here. And you and I can know that as we come to the table this morning, to come near the king's table and feast there.